Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study is brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number five, Ruth chapter two continued. Well, let's briefly review because it's been a while since we met. Um, <clears throat> we left off in Ruth chapter two with Ruth meeting Boaz, and Boaz, who was a relative of the deceased Elimelech, admiring Ruth for her dedication to Naomi, Elimelech's widow. And of course, uh, Ru, uh, Naomi was Ruth's Jewish mother-in-law. Now what makes Ruth's commitment all the more astounding in Boaz's eyes is that Ruth is a Moabite. She's a Gentile who has turned her back on her former nation, her parents, her family, and her former god, Chemosh, in order to come to Bethlehem of Judah with Naomi and take up worship of the God of Israel and make the Israelite people her own people. She has also given up the prospects of a reasonably secure life as a widow living with her parents for the uncertain future of living among a people she's unfamiliar with and also the task of taking care of an aged Jewish woman, Naomi. Now because the theme of the first two chapters of Ruth is this mysterious relationship that is created between Gentile and Hebrew, when that Gentile converts to the worship of Yehoveh, we discussed at length that a strong bond ought to form naturally, as illustrated by Ruth, between Gentile Christians and the Hebrew people. But sadly, it's been an underlying Christian doctrine for a very long time that Gentile Christians have replaced the, Jew, uh, the Hebrew people as God's people. And thus, a wall of separation has been erected between the two groups. And I'm here to tell you in the strongest possible terms that that doctrine is the result of rampant anti-Semitism within the earliest Roman church leadership, a desire to distance Christianity from all things Jewish, in order to create an exclusively Gentiles-only religion. And such a thing can happen only because rank-and-file believers tend to prefer men's doctrines, no matter how misguided, to the divinely intended, or rather, to, to the divine word of God. Okay. So-called replacement theology has done extensive damage to the divinely intended connection between Hebrews and Gentile believers. And has also led to several attempts by men bearing the symbol of the cross to exterminate the Jewish people from the face of the earth. Now, how we can read the wonderful and inspired book of Ruth and so easily adopt that part of the theology of Ruth that deals with her relationship with Boaz as her kinsman redeemer 
and accept it, as we ought to, as a type and shadow of the church and of our Jewish Savior, only to turn around and then disavow the equally powerful part of the theology of Ruth that shows that converted Gentiles ought to cleave to the Jewish people is a study in religious hypocrisy that we really need to correct. Ruth was gleaning in Boaz's fields when her fortunes began to turn. And even this was because the hand of the God of the Hebrews guided her unawares to that particular area of a common field shared by many farmers. The law of Moses generally allowed the poverty-stricken Ruth to choose any field to glean that caught her eye. But the Lord had his own plans. Boaz was attracted to Ruth by her youthful beauty and her rare character. Thus he began almost immediately to show her special favor. Now Boaz was an old man at this time, successful and wealthy, and his unmerited kindness towards Ruth is a study in the wonderful Hebrew concept of hesed, acts of loving kindness towards others, as a response to God's love and mercy towards his redeemed. And of course, Ruth is exhibiting that same quality towards Naomi, even though she's not fully aware of it. Boaz then instructed Ruth that she should glean only from his field, full time, and thus he and his hired men could watch over her and protect her. He even went so far as to allow her the unheard of privilege of gathering up stalks of barley and wheat that Boaz's men intentionally yanked out of the carefully bundled sheaves of grain just to make her gleaning time easier and much more productive. Let's reread all of chapter 2 so we can get back up to speed together. Ruth chapter 2. Ten fifty-eight. if you have the complete Jewish Bible. If you have another Bible, you'll probably find it immediately following Judges. Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a prominent and wealthy member of Elimelech's clan, whose name was Boaz. But the woman from Moab said to Naomi, Let me go into the field and glean ears of grain behind anyone who will allow me to. And she answered her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and arrived at the field and gleaned behind the reapers. She happened to be in the part of the field that belonged to Boaz from Elimelech's clan when Boaz arrived from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, Adonai be with you. And they answered him, Adonai bless you. Then Boaz asked his servant supervising the reapers, Whose whose girl is this? And the the, uh, servant supervising the reapers answered, Well, she's a girl from Moab who returned with Naomi from the plain of Moab. And she said... Please let me glean and gather what falls from the sheaves behind the reapers. So she went and has kept at it from morning until now, except for little rest in the shelter. And Boaz said to Ruth, Did you hear that, my daughter? Don't go to glean in another field. Don't leave this place, but stick here with my working girls. 
Keep your eyes on whichever field the reapers are working in and follow the girls. I've ordered the young men not to bother you. Whenever you get thirsty, go, drink from the water jugs the young men have filled. And she fell on her face, prostrating herself, and said to him, Why are you showing me such favor? Why are you paying any attention to me? After all, I'm only a foreigner. And Boaz answered her, I've heard the whole story. Everything you've done for your mother-in-law since your husband died, including how you left your father and mother and the land you were born in to come to a people about whom you knew nothing beforehand. (coughs) May Adonai reward you for what you've done. May you be rewarded in full by Adonai, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. And she said, My Lord, I hope I continue pleasing you. You have comforted and encouraged me, even though I'm not even one of your servants. And when mealtime came, Boaz said to her, Come here, have something to eat. Dip your piece of bread in the olive oil and vinegar. She sat by the reapers and they passed her some roasted grain. She ate till she was full and she had some left over. And when she got up to glean, Boaz ordered his young man, Let her glean even among the sheaves themselves without making her feel ashamed. In fact, pull some of the ears of grain out from the sheaves on purpose. Leave them for her to glean and don't rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. When she beat out what she had gathered, it came to about a bushel of barley. She picked it up, went back to the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned and Ruth brought out and and gave her what she had left over after eating her fill. And her mother-in-law asked her, Where did you glean today? Who were, Where were you working? Blessed be the one who took such good care of you. And she told her mother-in-law with whom she had been working. She said, The name of the man with whom I was working today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by Adonai, who has never stopped showing grace neither to the living nor to the dead. And Naomi also told her, that man's closely related to us. He's one of our redeeming kinsmen. But the woman from Moab said, moreover, he even said to me, stay close to my young men until they finished my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it's good, my daughter, for you to keep going out with his girls so that you won't encounter hostility in some other field. So she stayed close to Boaz's girls to glean until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Now we're going to be looking at a couple of very important principles shortly. And I hope you're ready to absorb some information now at a pretty fast and furious pace. I told you to end our last lesson that I wanted to point out something interesting to you about Boaz pulling out the stalks from the wheat and barley so that Ruth could gather them. And that something that I want to show you is in Romans 11. And it's contained in a dissertation by Paul that deals with the means by which Gentiles, like Ruth, are able to come under Israel's covenants for salvation. Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. And it's here that Paul presents the theology of Ruth in the classic rabbinical way that a highly trained Pharisee such as Paul was would do as a natural course. He sets up the straw man 
and then he speaks to it. We're going to read Romans 1, uh, 11, 1 through 26, 14, 14 in the complete Jewish Bible. In that case, I say, isn't it that God has repudiated his people? Heaven forbid. For I myself am the son of Israel from the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not repudiated his people, whom he chose in advance. Or don't you know what the Tanakh says about Eliyahu? He pleads with God against Israel. Adonai, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I'm the only one left. Now they want to kill me too. But what is God's answer to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not knelt down to Baal. It's the same way in the present age. There is a remnant chosen by grace. Now, if it's by grace, it's according, not based on legalistic works. If it were otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. (laughs) What follows is that Israel has not attained the goal for which she is striving. The ones chosen have attained it, but the rest have been made stone-like, just as the Tanakh says. God has given them a spirit of dullness. Eyes that don't see, ears that don't hear, right down to the present day. And David says, Let their dining table become for them a snare and a trap, a pitfall and a punishment. Let their eyes be darkened so that they can't see, with their backs bent continually. In that case, I say, Isn't it that they have stumbled with the result that they have permanently fallen away? Heaven forbid. Quite the contrary. It's by means of their stumbling that the deliverance has come to the Gentiles in order to provoke them to jealousy. Moreover, if their stumbling is bringing riches to the world, that is, if Israel's being temp- being placed temporarily in a condition less favored than that of the Gentiles is bringing riches to the latter, how much greater riches will Israel in its fullness bring them? However, to those of you who are Gentiles, I say this. Since I myself am an emissary sent to the Gentiles, I make known the importance of my work and the hope that somehow I may provoke some of my own people to jealousy and save some of them. For if their casting Yeshua aside means reconciliation for the world, what will their accepting him mean? It'll be life from the dead. Now, if the hollow offered as the first fruits is holy, so is the whole loaf. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, a wild olive, were grafted in among them and had become equal shares in the rich root of the olive tree, then don't boast as if you're better than the branches. However, if you do boast, just remember that you're not supporting the root. The root supporting you. So you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in? True. But so what? They were broken off because of their lack of trust. However, you're going to keep your place only because of your trust. So don't be ignorant. On the contrary, be terrified. Because if God didn't spare those natural branches, he's not going to spare you. So take a good look at God's kindness and his severity. On the one hand, 
severity towards those who fell off. But on the other hand, God's kindness towards you, provided you maintain, you maintain yourself in that kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Moreover, the others, if they do not persist in their lack of trust, will be grafted in because God is able to graft them right back in. Because if you were cut out of what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? Because, brothers, I want you to understand this truth which God formerly concealed, but now he's revealed it. So that you won't imagine that you know more than you really do. It is that stoniness, to a degree, has come upon Israel until the Gentile world enters its fullness. And that, is, and that it is in this way that all Israel will be saved. We're not going to study this whole chapter, but I wanted you to hear this in context. Okay? And the context is in the form of a question. Has God repudiated his people, the Hebrews, and replaced them with the new Gentile converts who wish to follow the Messiah, Yeshua? And the answer Paul gives is what? Heaven forbid. And then goes on to explain just how a Gentile should view his new relationship in Christ with the people of Israel. And where is in the book of Ruth, the kinsman redeemer Boaz has pulled out some of the gathered stalks of wheat and barley from the sheaf so that Ruth could join in the choice harvest. So we have the metaphor of the olive tree which is a regular biblical metaphor for Israel, where branches are pulled out, they're removed by the Jewish kinsman redeemer, Yeshua, so that Gentiles can be grafted in and partake of the choice harvest. The theology of Paul is the theology of Ruth. Gentiles must join Israel in the way that counts the most, spiritually, in order to be redeemed by the God of Israel. And to illustrate this fundamental truth, agricultural motifs are used because Israel was an agricultural society. And so they could more easily be visualized and understood by the people. Paul ends his argument of Romans 11 by explaining something that ought to put all Gentiles in our proper place. He says, now, the reason that God has allowed Gentiles to do the heretofore unthinkable, which was to participate into what up till now had been an exclusively Hebrew covenant without a national conversion anyway, is so that all Israel will be saved. That's why God's doing it. Gentiles being saved are essentially a byproduct of God's goal of saving all of Israel. If that doesn't pop your pride, I don't know what will.
Ruth, from before time was time, was destined to be the Gentile grandmother of the Jewish king David, who would go on to produce the Jewish messianic line that led to the Jewish Yeshua of Nazareth. Ruth, in God's eyes, was a necessary element as a Gentile to bring about the Jewish Savior whose purpose it was to save all Israel. But because of God's inscrutable inclusion of Gentiles at critical moments in this long redemptive process, Gentiles would now also be given the opportunity to be redeemed, but under the covenants that God gave to the Hebrews. There was no new special Gentile covenant handed down. There are several more connections like these that, that, that we'll explore. But the point was to show you the direct Old Testament parallel of the stalks removed from the sheaves for the sake of the Gentile Ruth to the New Testament metaphor by Paul of branches being removed from the olive tree for the sake of all Gentiles who would trust Christ. Back to the book of Ruth. <clears throat> verse 17 of chapter 2 says that due to Boaz's kindness Ruth was able to gather an abnormally large amount of barley that day and when she separated the grain from the heads and the stalks by beating them on the threshing floor it came to an entire bushel which means something between 55 and 60 pounds of grain Ruth had quite a load to take home to Naomi and when Naomi saw it, she was startled. Right? And in a disbelieving voice asked, Where did you glean today? And then offered a joyful blessing upon whatever field owner had been so generous, having no idea that it was Boaz. When Ruth revealed his identity to her, Naomi was practically in shock at this wonderful fortune. Naomi knew instantly that it was the same Lord who had afflicted her with such bitterness who was now afflicting her with such grace and favor as to not only provide so much grain for their sustenance but also to lead Ruth directly to Boaz a family kinsman redeemer at last finally after so long a time of darkness in their lives, there was hope. So Naomi listened intently as Ruth explained all the circumstances surrounding her encounter with Boaz. And Naomi told Ruth that she needed to do as Boaz said. Stay close to Boaz's female harvesters so that she was protected and not mistreated by others among the Jewish community who probably didn't much care for the idea of a Moabite gleaning in Jewish fields. Ruth listened to her mother-in-law and did as Boaz offered and Naomi affirmed. Now before we venture into Ruth chapter 3, we're going to pause and closely examine another one of those principles I said at the outset of today's lesson that we would. <clears throat> and it's the concept of what Christians call the kinsman redeemer. 
Because from here forward in the story of Ruth, that concept is what is front and center. Now, it's important for us to understand that concept in its fullness. Because otherwise, we can get some very wrong or incomplete impressions about not only the office of a kinsman redeemer in general, but also in Yeshua's role as our kinsman redeemer and then how all that affects our relationship with him. First of all, the Hebrew word is ge'al or go'el. And it is this word that English Bibles generally translate into kinsman redeemer. And in fact, that's incorrect. More correctly, go'el simply means a near relative who is able to perform a whole range of certain duties within his own clan or tribe. Only one of those many duties is, it, is as a kinsman redeemer. Let me give you an analogy so you can kind of understand what I'm getting at. Let's take the term mother. Okay. Being a mother means a whole series of things. In one context, it means the person who gives you life. In another, it means to suckle and give sustenance. In another context, it means the female authority figure in the family. In American society, it usually means the person who's in charge of all the domestic affairs of the home. Traditionally, it means the one who cooks and cleans and nurtures the children. Goel is like that. Being a kinsman redeemer is just one of the many duties that a Goel may perform. And like that of a mother, the Goel may perform some of those duties and maybe not others. Second, we need to step back and understand that the solidarity and continuation of a tribe and a clan was paramount in ancient Hebrew and in most Middle Eastern societies. We today like to say that the family is the basic social unit that our country operates under. And that is certainly true. But what's a family? Because the way family has evolved in the Western world as opposed to the Eastern world, we have this idealized Western family that's come to mean a certain thing to us. And in general, particularly in the West, it means mom, dad, and 2.3 kids all living together under one roof. Grandparents, aunts, Uncles are generally seen as family units of their own, somewhat secondary to what we now today call the immediate family. Broken homes due to divorce or children born out of wedlock have put that ideal of an identifiable family unit into reverse over the past few decades. But nonetheless, it remains as fragile as it is as the norm for us. But this was not so in ancient times like, or ancient cultures like that of Israel. Biblical families were not like modern Western families. The biblical family was not seen as merely the parents and their immediate children. Rather, it was at that time a little more 
as it was for Americans in the 19th century when we were a nation of farmers. Okay. Then, we were more clan-like. And we tended to think of families as automatically including what sociologists today would term the extended family. Okay. Extended families, by our modern definition, generally includes grandparents, aunts, uncles, and first cousins. Okay. But even Western extended families still don't rise to the level of a biblical clan. A biblical clan generally included all related members of a family who can be connected to a common son of the original founder of that tribe. This can amount to hundreds, thousands of family members. Certainly in some cases, clan size, the, the want of power and autonomy and, and the distance of time caused some clans to split into two, but even then, they completely recognized their familial bonds. Now, in the case of Boaz, we have no idea exactly what the relationship was with Elimelech. Rabbis have fancifully said he was Elimelech's nephew, but there's utterly no evidence of such a thing. Whatever the relation was, it must have been unimportant to the story. And equally likely, it wasn't a very close kinship as we would think of close in our day. You see, it was for the defense of the clan and the tribe that the office of Goel existed. The concept was that any rights that a man possessed that could be lost due to his inability to perform them could and should be, resu uh, be resumed by his next of kin. The closest possible next of kin then bore both the senior position and the senior responsibility to perform those duties on behalf of the man who couldn't. There were a whole variety of reasons why a man might have to rely on his next of kin to assume these duties for him. And his own untimely death was among the most common of those reasons. In Hebrew society, the closest of a relationship after parents was first brother and then uncle on the father's side. After that, it was uncle on the mother's side. And from there, it could range to grandparents, first cousins, second cousins, and on we go. <laughs> The father's side always carried more weight than the mother's side. And should one side or the other be a non-Hebrew, the Hebrew side, of course, is what mattered. Now, one of the real dangers in ancient times was that through intermarriage with foreigners and then death of the Israelite male family leader, Israelite tribal lands could be lost to foreigners. But nearly on par with that was that as time went on, it became more and more common for one Israelite clan member to marry somebody from another Israelite clan. Or for one member of a clan to marry even outside their tribe altogether. Either of these situations caused problems due to the laws 
concerning land inheritance. And God's Torah declared that land allotted to Israelite clans and tribes had to remain there in perpetuity. And again, the Goel played a very key role in ensuring that none of these cases automatically meant that land from one clan could be lost to another on a permanent basis. Thus, perhaps the most common duty we find of a goel was to purchase land from a kinsman so that it wouldn't be sold to a person outside of that man's own clan or tribe. Now, notice I said clan or tribe as opposed to immediate family. While the land often stayed within an immediate family's possession when a kinsman redeemer interceded, the real goal, the ultimate goal, was that the land remained within the extended family, within the clan. Whether the immediate family got to keep it or not was totally secondary. The term that was applied to a goel's purchase of land on behalf of this relative was redeem. Whose sake was the goel's was the goel redeeming it for? Again, the clan, the tribe. In fact, sometimes it was very costly, quite financially debilitating for a goel to purchase land and redeem it for the sake of his clan. And thus it was often quite a sacrificial act on us on his part to do that. Further, it could be so potentially financially debilitating that the closest next of kin, the closest relative in the family structure who should be the goel, would refuse to do it. And then the next closest would have to assume that responsibility. Understand now that the refusal of a goel to do his duty did not bring him a criminal penalty. Because it essentially was a spiritually driven act. It was a matter of conscience. But on the other hand, sometimes it was actually quite an advantage for the closest relative to get first shot at buying some property because under many circumstances it became his and he could put it into production or he could lease it out and make quite a profit. And another and perhaps chief and most somber duty of a goel was to be a blood avenger. In Hebrew, a goel hadam. It was a very important clan duty in ancient society that the nearest of kin hunt down and kill a person who has slain a family member. This idea of family retribution or the carrying out of justice on behalf of the clan is by no means extinct in the world today. Islamic society has blood vengeance as a basic tenet of its law system. So it's common in the Middle East and the Far East. It wasn't really visible to us of the Western world until recently as we have a huge influx into Europe and to America of Muslims who have brought that concept 
of family vengeance with them. And they fully intend to continue it as an inviolable religious principle. Thus, pretty often today, in the news, we'll hear of a Muslim husband beheading an unfaithful wife. Or a father killing a man who had sex out of wedlock with his daughter and then killing his daughter too. Or even a family member killing someone who's offended the family in some way that the offender's not even aware. And this system of blood vengeance was part of the Hebrew system, but not in the same way as it is today for Islam. The Hebrew system, the biblical Torah system of blood vengeance in defense of the clan, was the firm belief that God, in order to secure the sacredness of human life, had ordained that a murderer must suffer the death penalty. He must. It was common in ancient societies, and again, still is in Islamic society, that under certain circumstances, blood money could be paid by the perpetrator of a murder <coughs> to his family, right, to the family of the murdered, in lieu of his being executed. There was a very recent case in Yemen Weeks ago, as a matter of fact. Where a Yemenite Muslim murdered a Jew. But because of the hatred fostered against Jews and all of Arab society, the penalty for him was not death, as called for, by the way, in Islamic law. But rather, it was merely a fine of money. A payment of blood money. Most of which went to the state of Yemen and not to the Jewish family as it was supposed to. In the system of justice that God handed down, though, such payments of money in exchange for a murderer's life is not allowed. And this was for spiritual reasons as much as for fairness and equity. Numbers 35-31 says this, You are not to accept a ransom in lieu of the life of a murderer condemned to death. He must be put to death. See, the spiritual reason for not accepting blood money instead of the criminal's life is that unjustly spilled blood pollutes the land. And the only atonement available, the only means to remove, remove the impurity and all of its consequences from the land is that the blood of the killer be taken. Now, while this principle is contained in the law of Moses, in fact, it was a basic God principle that was established hundreds of years before Mount Sinai. And we find it all the way back in Genesis 4. Let me just read it to you. Genesis 4.10. He said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood at your hands. When you farm the ground it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a fugitive wandering the earth. So, and I'll hear this because it's so key in what even our Christian understanding of a goel is and what he does and thus is part of our Messiah's role. 
the blood avenger was regarded not only as the legal representative of the affected family and clan, but also the blood avenger was the legal representative of God, who is the highest avenger and nearest kinsman to all, spiritually speaking. Yet another duty of a goel, should the need arise, was to buy the property of a relative, redeem the person of a relative who had to sell his land or forfeit his own freedom and become a bond servant due to, due to satisfying a debt. We find in Jeremiah 32 that the Goel had not only the duty to redeem the person or the property, but also he had the right of first refusal to purchase that indebted property before it went up for sale. In other words, in modern terms, if we owned a home with a mortgage but lost the home to foreclosure, the nearest male relative had the right of preemption, and he could purchase the home to his own benefit before it ever went up for public auction. In fact, a goel, at least until the era of the rabbis dawned and the system was redesigned by these Jewish religious leaders, a goel could even redeem the property back to the clan after it had been sold to a foreigner or a non-clan member. That was still not the end of the duties of a goel. Our story of Ruth shows that a goel also had the obligation to marry a next-of-kin's widow, if that was necessary to rescue the land from being lost to another clan, tribe, or foreigner. And to some degree or another, this operated as, or in lieu of, leather-rate marriage, especially if there was no brother of a deceased man available to marry the widow, providing she was childless. Thus, in the book of Ruth, the marriage of Ruth to Boaz that we're going to see in the final chapter was not leverate marriage, since Boaz certainly was not a brother of the deceased. All right. Rather, it was the somewhat extended duty of the Goel, of Elimelech's clan, in this case Boaz, to marry the childless widow Ruth, not only to rescue the land, and, and even that was technically on Naomi's behalf, but also to provide Ruth with a male child for her to carry on the, the line of her deceased husband. Okay, now, I've given you a fairly full range of just what a goel is. So now it's time that serious Bible students such as yourselves begin to realize that Yeshua HaMashiach is a goel for all who trust in him. But not merely a kinsman redeemer. Because that's just part of what a goel does. But where did this concept come from? That the Messiah would be a goel to God's people. A near relative who had family obligations. Well first, very early on, God was seen as the divine. Goel and as the one who would redeem his people. Just as the concept of a Goel happened shortly after the creation of Adam and Eve, as we read in Genesis 4, so it was that the concept of redemption happened 
well before it was made part of the law as given to Moses on Mount Sinai. Thus, those who would argue that the law is dead and gone and has no effect on Gentile Christians, as wrong as they are about that, they still find themselves facing the biblical reality that the concept of a goel and redemption was pre-law. And thus a foundational God principle that would figure into everything God was going to ordain and therefore naturally it would be part of Messiah's character. There are 33 passages in the Tanakh, the Old Testament, that uses the term goel, which is a noun or its verb form, which is ge'el, to refer to God. Did you hear that? 33 passages use the term goel to refer to God. So how does this all now connect to salvation? Well, not surprisingly, the Hebrews developed the idea of God as the goel who produces salvation for his people and then extended that to his Messiah. Now hear that, please. I'm saying that Yeshua as a saving Messiah who redeems because he is God is hardly a New Testament invention. It's a fulfillment of an Old Testament principle that goes all the way back to Genesis 4. Now let me show you something, and we'll end with this today, about how the Hebrew language rolls all these concepts of salvation and redemption and Messiah into one and then presents it all as a means of victory. The Hebrew uh, root word that's formed Yud, Shin, Ayin or Y-S like the S-H sound and then either a silent or nearly silent A sound is usually pronounced Yesha. And literally it means to make wide. To make wide. Now, there are all sorts of derivatives of this word from which we get in the English save, or keep alive, or to live. The prophet Ezekiel, during the time of the exiles of the Jews to Babylon, used this same term, yasha, to express the condition of a sinner who has repented of his trespasses against God, and thus, by God's mercy, he has escaped the rightful consequences of sin, which is death, and thus he continues to have life. Now, this root word, yesha, that literally means to make wide, isn't so difficult to understand. Evil and severe danger was literally thought, the mental picture of it, to a Hebrew in ancient times, was to be this narrowing condition. So it was from a narrow place. We would say today, being put in a bind. I'm in a tight spot. I'm in a squeeze. You with me? Mm -hmm. A narrow place. That we always have a sufferer crying out for help. You with me? Okay. Thus, when the help comes, now he's said to be in a wide place. Therefore, in the Hebrew mind, and then converting that to our modern thinking, 
The idea of moving from a narrow place of suffering to a wide place of comfort and joy is victory. Amazingly, we find in Psalm 118 the words Rina and Yeshua. Notice that Yeshua stems from the root word Yasha, by the way. That when used together signifies a jubilant cry of victory from those who have been under oppression and are suffering. The point being that the concept of victory is all wrapped up in the concepts of salvation and redemption in the Hebrew language and thought. Now, as pertains to the Messiah, and I remind you I'm still giving you the Hebrew conception of this. The terms salvation and redemption are identical in purpose and meaning. And this is pretty important for a Christian to understand because too much the redemption of the Old Testament is thought to have an inferior concept to the salvation of the New Testament. This is not true. This is just academically not true. And I've taught for years that we can absolutely freely interchange the terms salvation and redemption anywhere we want to. Now, since God is the heavenly Goel, He is the heavenly Redeemer, thus He's the heavenly Savior. Therefore, His earthly Messiah must necessarily be the earthly Goel, the earthly Redeemer, meaning the same thing as the earthly Savior, and all this is understood in the Hebrew context as the Messiah, being an earthly representative of the heavenly God. Now, does this sound an awful lot like our wondrous and glorious Master King and Savior, Yeshua of Nazareth? You bet it does. But this also means that Yeshua, now follow me, is obligated to be our Goel. And to perform all the duties associated with a Goel. If, if we become part of his family by means of trusting him. He is obligated. Do you hear that? We Gentiles join Yeshua's family by trusting in Him. And Yeshua's family members are the redeemed. And who are the original redeemed of God? Israel. Redeemed at the hand of God, the Deliverer, the Savior from Egypt. Thus Paul's metaphor of Romans 11 that has Gentile believers grafted into the olive tree, Israel, pulls this all together for us. Now with that understanding of the amazing and divinely established office of Goel, we're going to be able to move further into the book of Ruth and much better understand what's about to transpire. And we'll get into that in chapter 3 next week.